Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, about three months, and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for the past two weeks, we've been looking at the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her encounter with uh, the angel that came to announce to her Uh, that she was going to give birth to Jesus. Many people have called Mary the first Christian because she's the very first person to hear the name Jesus and actually respond to it. And that helps us because you can't really respond rightly to Jesus unless you have a good understanding of who he is in the first place. And that's where Mary's story helps us so much because she shows us both how to understand who Jesus is and how to respond to him. Now, this week, this passage we just read is the climax of her story. The very first week, uh, three weeks ago, when we started, we saw that Mary's journey to faith does not begin with complete acceptance and wholehearted um, surrender to the gospel. She doesn't hear the gospel and, and immediately say, oh, how wonderful, it all makes perfect sense, sign me up. No, she actually begins with doubt. She begins by exploring the claims of the gospel. Now, last week, we saw the next place she goes is Mary comes to a place of surrender. She surrenders her life. She surrenders her longings, her conditions. She says to God, okay, you want to use me? Help yourself to my life. That's where she's at. Now, this week, in this passage, she goes to her relative Elizabeth, who herself is six months uh, pregnant with John the Baptist. But... It's important at this point to pause and consider for just a moment, where is Mary at this point in her life? I mean, think about where she's at. First of all, she's still on the bottom of the social ladder. She's poor. 
She's Jewish, which means that she's living under foreign occupation and political oppression. She's unmarried, which means that she has no resources to support herself. She's a female in a patriarchal culture, which means that she was uneducated, which means she doesn't have the means of getting a way to support herself in this world. In every conceivable way, Mary's at the bottom of the social ladder still. And on top of all that, now she's miraculously pregnant with God. Only no one's ever going to believe her, which means that she's also looking at a life of social rejection. Mary's facing some significant challenges in her life. In fact, even though she just met an angel, her life is actually harder now than it was before. And yet, what's going on in this passage that we just read? She breaks out into song. And just to be clear, she's not singing the blues. This is not a song of sadness. This is a song of rapturous, exuberant, over-the-top joy. Something has happened to Mary. She's combustible. Something caught fire inside of her. She's, she's literally bursting, overflowing with joy. There's like thunderclaps are breaking inside of her, and she's just singing out for joy. So the question is, where in the world does a joy like this come from, especially when Mary is staring into the abyss of a ruined life? You know, a lot of us in this room, you've got challenges in your life. Some of you are facing some pretty extreme and serious challenges yourself. But I would say probably very few, if any of us, are facing the kinds of challenges that Mary was facing at this point in her life, and yet something happened to her. Something happened inside of her. You see it in the passage. She sings out, my soul, my spirit. Something is going on inside of her. What in the world could it be, and could you possibly experience something similar yourself? Let's find out by seeing three things in this passage. We're going to see um, why Mary sang. We're going to see what she sang. And lastly, we're going to see how we can sing the same way. Why she sang, what she sang, and how we can sing the same way. All right? First, why was Mary singing? Last week, as I said, we were looking at Mary's encounter with the angel. Now, the very last thing we saw when we left Mary last week, she said those famous words, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Uh, So Mary surrenders, but think about her words for just a moment. Mary does not say, hey, this is what I really want. She says, God, this is what you want. And if that's what you want, okay. So is she obedient? Yes. Is she faithful and committed and devoted? Absolutely. But is Mary joyful here? Not so much. She's facing the reality that she's probably going to be an unwed mother and that her life is actually going to get harder now than it was before. So Mary's resigning herself to the fact that both she and her child are going to live lives of poverty, shame, scorn, humiliation, and rejection. Hardly a reason to break out into song. And yet here in this passage, she comes to Elizabeth, and as soon as Mary greets Elizabeth, as soon as the the words come out of her mouth, the little baby in in Elizabeth's womb just leaps for joy. And it says that um, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, which means she's getting divine insight into the significance of the baby's leap. And, And she begins to tell Mary what this means. And here's what she says. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
Now, this would have blown Mary away for at least a couple of reasons. And the first one is this. Elizabeth, Mary's relative, was an old woman. She was in a society that put a lot of respect on older people. She was the wife of a priest in Jerusalem, which means that in every way, Elizabeth is the social superior in this situation. And yet here's this um, dignified, respected woman in the community treating Mary, a social outsider, with the kind of respect and honor and dignity that Mary may, may never have before experienced in her life. It would have blown her away. In fact, Mary would have been thinking, who am I? That, that I should set foot inside your home. And yet Elizabeth says to her, oh, no, no, Mary, it's the exact opposite. Who am I that I should have someone like you in my home? Would have astounded Mary. But even more than that, it wasn't just what Elizabeth said to Mary about Mary. It was what Elizabeth said to Mary about Jesus. She says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She's saying, Mary, the Lord sent you to me. And right after this, she also says, Mary, the Lord blessed you because you believed what he said he was going to do. But right in the middle of that, she says, Mary, you are also the mother of my Lord. Do you hear that? This, I mean, Elizabeth is one of the first great theologians of the church. She's saying, Mary, the Lord who filled your womb is also the Lord who's inside of your womb. In other words, not only did the Lord send Jesus, the Lord is Jesus. What? You know, this is where the thunderclap breaks for Mary. This is where the fire ignites inside of her heart. This is where she breaks out into song. This is where she starts singing, what happened to her? Well, let me put it like this. Um, ask you a question. What is the most painful and terrifying experience that can happen to a human being? And I'm thinking not so much physical, but more emotional or psychological. You could probably think of a few candidates, but I would suggest that the most painful and terrifying thing a human being can experience is being ignored, being rejected, being shut out, cast out from love, attention, acceptance, welcome from other people. And in fact, for instance, John Bowlby uh, was a psychiatrist who developed what's known as attachment theory. Um, when he was working in a hospital during World War II, John Bowlby came into contact. He was working with a number of children who were very severely emotionally and psychologically distressed. Um, and yet, as he was working them, he began to see that almost every single one of these um, children had experienced prolonged separation from either their parents or their primary caregivers. In other words, none of these children had ever been loved, they had never been touched, they had never been held, they had never been welcomed, and it, they were literally dying from a lack of love. And I think that every single person in this room knows something about that. Maybe not to that kind of extreme, but we all know something about that. We've all experienced what it's like to be afraid that no one will like you, no one will accept you, no one will welcome you, to feel like an outsider, to feel like a nobody. It's one of the worst feelings in the world, which means that one of the most powerful and life-changing experiences that anyone can experience would be to be noticed, to be welcomed, to be loved, and to be accepted. So for instance, there's a movie that just came out in the theaters right now. It's called Wonder. I don't think I'd be giving anything away to tell you that it's all about a little boy named August Pullman, Augie for short, uh, who was born with a horribly disfigured face. 
And so he goes around his whole life wearing a helmet over his head in public because um, whenever people see his face, they get afraid of him. But then his parents decide to send him to public school without the helmet. And even though there's like two kids that are nice to him, nobody else in the school wants to have anything to do with him. Nobody will look at him. Nobody will pay attention to him. Nobody will even touch him because they're afraid that if they even touched him, they would be infected with somebody, with something. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Nobody will look at you. Nobody will pay attention to you. Nobody will even touch you. It's awful. So later, one of the boys in the movie, one of the boys that's been bullying August, actually begins to show some kindness to him. And actually, at at that point in the movie, he reaches out and he actually touches August's hand. And it's at that moment, just the sheer experience of being touched by another human being who previously had rejected him, it, it reduces August to tears. I mean, everybody's crying. Friends, think about it. You know something about this. You know what it's like to fear rejection. And you also know what it's like to be noticed, to be touched, to be affirmed, to be welcomed, and to be loved. There is nothing else like that in the world. There's nothing more redemptive than that. There's nothing more transformative than that. And here's what's really amazing about an experience like that. You know, pain and suffering have a way of drawing us deeper into ourselves. Isn't that true? Pain and suffering will make you more self-focused, more self-absorbed, more self-centered. And yet, when you're loved and you're welcomed like this, even though you're experiencing it in the very depths of your being, it almost has a way of lifting you up out of yourself so that, so that you feel wonder, amazement, astonishment, and joy. It humbles you, but in a way that actually still is conferring value and dignity upon you. It, it, it's almost like you feel like you're not worthy of such a love, and it's, and it's the knowledge that you don't feel worthy of that love that actually makes the love so life-changing, isn't it? Because if you felt worthy of the love, it wouldn't have the same kind of power in your life, almost as if you were saying, who am I? Now think about this with me. If that's what it feels like to be noticed and touched and welcomed and loved by another human being, what would it be like to be noticed and touched and welcomed and loved by God, the creator of the universe, the source of all love and affection and power. That's what happened to Mary. In verse 48, she says, God has looked upon me. He's looked upon the humiliation, literally the the lowliness of his servant. That's why Mary is singing in this passage. It's not just that another human being has paid attention attention to her. It's that the God of the universe has shed his love directly and powerfully upon her heart and the very core of her being. That's why she's singing. But secondly, what is Mary singing here? What's this whole song about? We could put it very simply and say that this song is all about what God is doing in the world. So let's ask the question, what is God doing in the world? What is Mary singing about? Well, first of all, there's a great reversal that she sings about in this song. And you see it especially in verses 51 through 53. In verse 51, it says God's showing strength, but he's scattering the proud. In verse 52, it says he's bringing down the mighty, but he's lifting up the humble. Now that word humble is a word that literally means like the poor or those who are um, humiliated. It's almost like those who are at the bottom of the social ladder. But it keeps going in verse 53. It says that God fills the hungry, but he's sending the rich away empty. Do you see it? There's a reversal going on here. 
First, there's a personal reversal. God is saying, if you think you're something, then you're nothing. But if you know you're nothing, then that's really when I can begin to make you something. A personal reversal. There's also a political reversal going on. God's bringing down the mighty from their thrones, but he's lifting up the poor. There's also a social reversal happening here where he's, he's filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty. Personal reversal, political and social reversal. God is reversing the distorted social orders of this world. If you read through the whole Bible... One of the things that you cannot miss is God's unmistakable preference for the poor. Um, God is constantly working through the weak ones, the rejected ones, the forgotten ones, the cast aside ones. We could say that God is constantly working through the August Pullmans of the world. One of the startling things about Mary's song here is that she's gut-wrenchingly honest about the evil and injustice in the world. You know, this song of Mary's, even it's beautiful, but it's gut-wrenchingly honest about the state of the world. It's not a sentimental song at all. This is not chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Mary lived, think about it, she lived in a world of foreign occupation, political oppression, economic deprivation, and social marginalization. That was her world, and that's the world that she's singing about in this song. She's gut-wrenchingly honest about the evil and the ugliness and the injustice in the world, but she's also filled with a vision of what God is doing about all of that evil, injustice, and ugliness in the world. And what God is doing is he's reversing it. But here's the challenge. When you liberate the oppressed ones, how do you keep them from becoming the new oppressors? How do you keep them from saying, ha-ha, we're in charge now? Wait till you see what we're going to do to those nasty oppressors who used to be on top of us. Now we're the ones on top. How do you reverse a distorted social order without replacing it with an equally distorted social order? That's the question, and that's the challenge. And it's because of the second thing we see here. Not only is there a great reversal, oh no, there is also a great renewal in this passage. In fact, you can't get the reversal without first getting the renewal. What do I mean by that? Well, we have to look not just at what God is doing in the world, we have to look also at what God is doing in Mary's heart. Right at the beginning, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So Mary calls God her Savior. She's saying, not only does the world need salvation, I need salvation too. Now, what does Mary mean by salvation? A lot of people would simply say, well, Mary's talking about political, economic, and social salvation. That's what salvation means in the Bible. It's, it's political and it's social. But I'm afraid that can't be true. And, and the first reason is this. Look at what Mary says, the very first words. She says, my soul, my spirit. She's not only talking about something that God is doing in the circumstances of her life, although he is talking about that. It's not just the circumstances of her life. She's talking about what God is doing inside of her, what God is doing in the very depths, in the very core of her being. She says, God is doing something inside of me. This is not just social, it's also spiritual, which leads to the second reason that salvation can't just be social and political. Um, when you look at this gospel that we're reading. It was written by a doctor named Luke, the gospel of Luke. Now, this gospel was actually part of a two-volume set. The gospel of Luke is um, in one place. If you skip ahead two books in the Bible, you get to the book of Acts. Acts was also written by Luke. 
In fact, Luke and Acts are two volumes in, a, in, a, in, in one single set. It's all one book, Luke and Acts. Now, as I just mentioned, when you read through the Bible, one of the things you see is a strong emphasis on what we would call social justice. Um, it's one of the main themes of the Bible. In fact, you could say that the Bible was woke before anybody else. In fact, this is true, the Bible actually gives us all the categories we need in order to even discuss what it means to be woke. Now, many people have noticed that of all the books in the New Testament, um, Luke and Acts is actually one of the strongest on social justice. In fact, you could say Luke and Acts is one of the most woke books in the Bible. But at the very same time, Luke and Acts is also one of the books of the Bible that is most focused on this pesky little doctrine that we modern people really hate, the doctrine of forgiveness of sins. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, whenever Luke wants to define salvation... Um, he almost always connects it to forgiveness of sins. This very woke book, very socially conscious book, won't get away from this doctrine of forgiveness of sins. So let me give you a few examples. Um, just a little bit later in the same chapter, right after John the Baptist is born, his father Zechariah has a little song of his own to sing. And right in that song, he says, God is giving knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Salvation means forgiveness of sins. Or you go to the end of, of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus sends his disciples out into the world to proclaim the message of salvation. And he tells them to go and proclaim a gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let me give you a couple of examples from the book of Acts. Remember, this is all part of the same book. Acts chapter 5, Peter is preaching a sermon to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And he says, God exalted Jesus as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Or a little later in Acts chapter 13, this time Paul is the one who's doing the preaching, and he begins his sermon by saying, here's the message of salvation. Literally, that's what he says. He goes through the whole sermon, and at the very end, he wraps it up by concluding and saying, that therefore, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Friends, everywhere salvation is defined, it's never just political and social, it's also spiritual. Over and over again, the gospel keeps telling us that you cannot address the social distortions of the world without first addressing the spiritual distortions of our lives. That there cannot possibly be a great reversal in the world unless there's first a great renewal in our hearts. That's the only thing that will keep the oppressed from becoming the new oppressors. You know, our normal way of thinking about ourselves, the normal internal dialogue of our hearts is this, don't they know who I am? Don't you know who I am? Or we should say, don't, don't, don't they know who I think I am? That's the normal internal dialogue of our hearts, but the gospel changes the internal dialogue of our hearts so that now we start saying, who am I? Who am I that God should show favor to me? There's a wonder, there's an astonishment, there's a joy in your life. Friends, the more you understand the gospel, the more it transforms you. And the more it transforms you, the more you begin to participate in the transformation of the world. Can you say, like Mary, you need a savior? Can you say, like Mary, unless there is a great renewal in my heart, then not only can I not participate in the great reversal of the world, I will actually continue to be a part of the problem that God's trying to reverse in the first place. Can you say that? Can you sing that? That actually leads to our last point. We've seen why Mary sang. We've seen what she sang. But the last thing we need to see is 
how can we sing the same way? Many of you might be in a really good place in life right now. And if that's true, I rejoice with you. But many others of you, you know, might be facing challenges in your life right now. Um, Some of you might be looking into the abyss, just like Mary was, and you're wondering, how can I find joy? And where especially could I possibly find a joy like this? Well, let me offer you just a few thoughts. Um, And the first is this, get into community. You know, when we first met Mary, she was by herself. She met an angel, but most of the beginning of her journey to faith, she did on her own. She went through the stages of doubt by herself. She went to surrender. She got there by herself. She got a good long way in her spiritual journey all by herself. But it wasn't until she went to Elizabeth that the joy exploded in her heart. The real transformation in Mary's life happened in community. Why? I'll give you a kind of a sad example, but it makes the point. When my dad passed away a few years ago, we had a memorial service for him. And you know, I knew my dad pretty well. We were, we were pretty close. Um, but even though I knew him really, really well, I talked to all kinds of people at my dad's memorial service that knew my dad. And because they're different people, they brought out different parts of my dad. They knew my dad in different ways than I knew my dad. And as I was talking to these people, I realized that I was growing in my own knowledge and experience of my dad because now I was in community with other people who knew him in ways that I didn't. Friends, in the same way, when you get into community with people who know Jesus, then you are going to grow in your knowledge and your experience of Jesus because you're in community with people who know him in different ways than you do. They're different people. So they're going to see different things. They're different people. So God is going to treat them different ways. You will experience a great increase in your own knowledge and experience of God when you get into community with other people who know him also. So first, we get into community. But secondly, we magnify the Lord. And what does that mean? It's very simple, actually. When Mary says at the beginning of her song, my soul magnifies the Lord, that word magnify means exactly what it sounds like. It means to to make something large, to make it huge, to make it big. It's kind of like taking a magnifying glass and putting it on something, but not one of those dinky little magnifying glasses that you hold in your hand. I'm thinking more like one of those ones that, you know, there's a stainless steel frame that's on wheels, and then there's a big, strong arm, and it comes over, and it's attached to a, a big magnifying glass that's about a foot in diameter. It has lights all the way around the edges, so that whatever you put that thing on, I mean, it just explodes in your field of vision. There's, it crowds everything else out. Whatever you put that magnifying glass on, all of a sudden, that thing becomes very huge, and you're not able to see anything else. Magnify. Now, here's why this is so important. We live in a a very relativistic, pluralistic culture. And that's not bad or good. It's just the way it is. Many people, because of that, though, many people really push back on this idea that Jesus is God in the flesh, born of a virgin, and come into the world to save people from their sins. They say that's way too narrow. It's way too exclusive. But understand something. If you reject that, then it's because you've already opted for another equally exclusive truth claim about Jesus. You may say, well, he's not God, he's human. He's not the savior of the world, he's a great teacher. You're still making an exclusive truth claim about Jesus. And understand something about that also. When you do that, you're also making claims about the nature of humanity's biggest problems and especially about the nature of the solution to those problems. Because if Jesus is not the God to save us, 
And that's literally what his name means, by the way. Jesus is Hebrew, Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. If Jesus is not who his name says he is, then then what you're saying is, whatever the nature of our biggest problems is, we human beings have both the responsibility and the power to save ourselves. Now, what does that look like if that's what you believe? Well, it means you focus on trying to be a good person. It means you focus on trying to make the world a better place. We, we, um, we, we try to become better people and try to make the world a better place. In other words, what are we doing? <laughs> We're magnifying ourselves. Now, let me ask you a question. How's that worked out for us so far? In other words, are, are we really making the world the place it ought to be? You know, back at the beginning of the 20th century, there were a lot of intellectuals and social engineers who really believed that, you know, humanity was reaching its pinnacle of perfection. They said, we're almost there. We're on the verge of perfection. We can do it. And then World War I happened. And then World War II happened. You can go back and you can read the journals and the diaries and the writings of these intellectuals and these social engineers, and you'll see that they were absolutely crushed with despair over the sheer relentless evil in the world. They realized that we human beings don't have the power to save ourselves. But even more than that, friends, if you magnify yourself, when did that ever bring you joy? When did focusing more on yourself, you know, focusing more on how you're doing, how you're performing, how you're measuring up, how you're growing and becoming a better, when did focusing on yourself ever bring you joy? That's not good news. (laughs) You know, just be a better person. In fact, it has a tendency to crush us because, listen, the doctrine that says we don't have the power to save ourselves, I mean, the doctrine that says we do have the power to save ourselves, and that is a doctrine. The doctrine that says we have the power is not only hopeless, it's crushing because it demands that we be and do something we don't have the power to do and to be. It will never cause wonder in your soul. It will never bring joy to your soul. It will never give you the kind of joy that Mary experienced here. So what do you need to do? You need to magnify the Lord. Not magnify yourself. You get that magnifying glass and you bring it over and what you do is you find ways to focus and to refocus and to refocus your heart and your mind and your spirit and your soul on the reality of who Jesus is and what he did for you. What is that? You have to see that the cross was the ultimate great reversal. Was it not? I mean, think about it. Read Revelation chapter 1. If you want to get a vision for who Jesus is, the cosmic king, his eyes are flames of fire. His voice is like the sound of many waterfalls. This is the ultimate exalted one. This is the ultimate king of the universe. This is, he sits on no mere dinky earthly throne, but the throne of heaven. Jesus is the ultimate exalted one. And yet the only way for lowly ones like Mary or you or me to be exalted was for this exalted one to be brought low. The only way that you and I could be Lifted up was for Jesus to go down. The only way that we could be filled was for Jesus to become empty. The only way that you and I could be blessed and filled with joy was for Jesus to be cursed on the cross and stripped, not just of his crown, not just of his throne, not just of his glory, but but of the very love and presence of God the Father. Because on the cross, Jesus was rejected and forsaken and cast aside so that you could be noticed and touched and welcomed and loved by God. 
Friends, that's how you learn to sing. When you magnify that in your life, you will learn to sing. The extent to which your heart is filled with the great reversal of the cross is the extent to which your life will be transformed by the great renewal of the cross. And if you do that, there's one last thing you do to learn to sing like this. Get close to the poor. Identify with the poor. If you know that you are poor, and yet in your poverty you have a Savior named Jesus who who identified with you on your poverty on the cross so that you could be identified with him in his glory, that means that, that if that great renewal has taken place in your heart, you will now become a part of the great reversal that's taking place and that God is doing in the world. You know, you will always do and say the same thing that Mary and Elizabeth said. You will say, oh my. Who am I that God should show mercy and forgiveness to somebody like me? I'm nobody. I'm the lowest of the low. And yet I have a high and lofty Savior who got low so that he could bring a lowly one like me and exalt me and lift me up. Friends, get into community. Magnify the Lord. Find new and ever greater ways to do that in your life. And go get close to the poor the rejected ones, the forsaken ones, the August Pullmans of our world. Go get close to them. You will learn to sing if you do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this song. We thank you for the joy. We thank you for the the wonder and the amazement that a God like you should look upon lowly ones like us. Father, we pray that you would help us to, to see, to magnify, to to get Jesus ever more into our field of vision, ever more deeply into our hearts, that the more we see and magnify him, Father, the the more we would be pulled up out of ourselves and the more that great renewal takes place in our heart, the more we would become a part of your great reversal in the world. Lord, help us this morning to see Jesus. Make him huge in our hearts. Magnify him this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to receive our offering at this time. The offering is an opportunity for, uh, for you to respond to God by trusting Him with your offerings and your gifts. If you're new or visiting here this morning, um, we want to invite you please to remain our guests uh, or our visitor and not feel any obligation to put anything in the offering bags except your talkback cards. That's the perforated section in the back of your bulletin. If you would fill that out and pop that in the offering bags, we'd be Uh, delighted to receive those. But for all of us, this is a chance to uh, ponder and to meditate what the Lord is saying to you this morning. Let me pray for us, and then the ushers will come forward. Father, we thank you for these gifts and these offerings, and we pray, Father, that you would use these to be magnified um, in this church and through this church in this city and through this city in the world. We pray that you would use it that many others may come to see and know this Jesus the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, for we pray it in his name. Amen.